Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. So our first guest is Ibrahim Fakir, who is well known in uh, in many circles. He has done research stints in all kinds of places. He worked for Idasa back in the earlier days. Uh, he's done. He writes prolifically on a range of South African political views, political issues. Uh, he's currently director of programs at the Alwal Social Economic Research Institute, otherwise known as OSRI, and a whole host of other things. Uh, Ibrahim, are you on the line with us? Do we have you there? Good morning, Brooks. Nice to chat to you. Yeah, no, I'm good. Good to good to catch up with you. Thank you. Uh, I want to pose two questions. First of all, just as a curiosity, you went from uh, English literature studies to political and social analysis. That's quite a leap, but uh, you you can answer that in your own way. But the the question that does interest me uh, in terms of our topic for today, that policy conference that the governing party just wrapped up had lots of recommendations, had lots of ideas, but they all seemed curiously stale. They all seemed like they were replays of earlier policy recommendations and earlier ideas. I didn't get the feeling, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a whole lot of innovation going on here, a whole lot of new approaches to the problems the country quite clearly does face. Your reaction, sir? I think you're absolutely spot on, Bruce. Uh, and... The difficulty for the ANC is that they moribund in a sense that the organization is stagnant. And so if the organization is stagnant, and some would say not just stagnant, but also in reversal, kind of, it's difficult for them to come up and innovate. It's difficult to come up with new ideas when, in fact, there are outstanding resolutions from policy conferences past which have never seen the light of day. So that's the first problem. There's an organizational problem. The second, which I'd like to call an institutional problem, is the ability to translate organizational resolutions and policy into government performance. And so the institutional problem is about the inability of the state due to three reasons, and the inability of government. I'm using you know state and government interchangeably. But the inability of the state of the government uh, to implement some of these policies sagaciously, effectively, efficiently is due to three reasons, as I say. The first is because of the ANC's malevolent state capture and corruption. It's been hollowed out, quite frankly, and you've written uh, books fairly extensively on this, that the state capture project has hollowed out public institutions to such an extent that they caught up either in organizational factional battles, which means that the institutions then become ambiguous in what role and function they're going to serve. And that's the first problem. The second is that they automatically, flowing from the first, are going to lack the capacity because no one's focusing on what they must actually do. They're focusing on doing all kinds of other things. So that's the second flowing from the first. The third is, yes, there's a capacity problem, but sometimes I think too much is made of the fact that, oh, we don't have capacity, we don't we don't have capacity, we don't have the skills. I think too much of that is being made about that in South Africa. What you have is you have the wrong people sometimes in the 
in the wrong job. So if you com- if that is a compounding factor to the first two, then you can see the problems that you're left with. There's a second set of related reasons, and that is about the policy posture of ANC government's past. And here, what you're talking about is, you know, the drive under President Mbeki for a modest budget surplus rather than running what would have been a modest budget deficit. And this had an impact in two or three ways. The first is that there was very little expenditure on maintenance, on repair, and on expanding the current infrastructure which services the society on you know issues of basic services. So what what people popularly call the neoliberal turn, and I don't like you to use the phrase because it's misleading, is that is that it, it really did have an effect. The driving towards a surplus did have an effect on the functioning of municipalities across the country. And so you're seeing it in the way in which it manifests for the way in the decline of the utilities. The second is that it it imply in it it imposed austerity in all the wrong areas. So it wasn't cutting government fat where it should have. Uh, it was cutting expenditure in areas which were actually vital. And some of these consequences are being felt in the underinvestment in ESCOM probably about two, two decades ago. And so and so that's the second set of, of broad-related reasons. So, you know, the organizational problems of the ANC and the institutional, it's, its own organizational problems have led to the institutional problems. And so we're sitting with what we have now. Compounded to all of those is the third set of factors, which was the, you know, malevolent state capture, which I've touched on briefly, and, and the high levels of corruption and, and, and civic immorality, uh, if I could call it that, in public life. So, so there's that. And then lastly, you know, if, if you've got these compounding problems, uh, they are compounded by the history and the inheritance of the history. Now, I don't want to make too much of the fact that the history is all determining. Apartheid and its consequences have left us in this inescapable bind in which we can get out, which we can't get out of. We certainly can, but you need prudent policies. You need uh, the ability to implement those policies, and you have to ensure that the policies are attuned actually to serving society rather than a set of interconnected elites who are playing off the state, so to speak. We're speaking with political analyst and evaluator of the deeds and misdeeds of government and and politics more generally, Ibrahim Fakir, somebody whose writing I've come to admire and appreciate over the years. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're speaking with Ibrahim Fakir, political analyst and evaluator of government, uh, a harsh critic, but sometimes I think an eminently fair one. Ibrahim, I, I want to take, for example, this constant refrain that I've seen over the years, the demand that the Reserve Bank be nationalized and somehow the Reserve Bank be turned into a state bank presumably to issue loans to people who otherwise wouldn't qualify. This comes back over and over again in the ANC policy doctrine, uh, as well as its associated groups, uh, the Communist Party, and I believe COSATU as well. Why is there such a 
an almost an obsessive focus on things like this, on uh, these relatively arcane or abstract ideas. <laughs> Brooks, it extends from the nationalization of the Reserve Bank through to creating a state pharmaceuticals company, a state, what can we call it, a state telecoms company, as if we haven't had one, and so on. So there is a general resolution, which is about strengthening, but well, first, before you strengthen, you have to stabilize all of the state-owned entities, right? And we know that there are major problems in things like Transnet, ESCOM, as we well know, after our bouts of... of um, load shedding, uh, to, to use a euphemism, and a whole range of other sort of public enterprises, SAA being one of the prime examples. But if you think carefully about how all of these state entities play a critical role in changing people's daily lives, for example, through transport, through in a, you know provision of energy and so on, they matter. They matter greatly. Now, if you're unable to already control many of the things which are already in your remit of authority and power, why would, why should society give you greater responsibility? Why would you want to overreach into areas and manage those things when you have been incapable of managing the things which are already in your control? So that's the first problem with this proposal, with this set of proposals. But there's a sinister reason why the idea of nationalizing the Reserve Bank is always surfacing. Because as we know, the Reserve Bank is largely uh, involved with money and money supply. Now, the debate has always been that, look, uh, every country owns its own Reserve Bank, owns in, in inverted commas. And therefore, we should have ours. Because South Africa does have a couple of private shareholders who have shares in the Reserve Bank. But it is nominal, firstly. Secondly, the shareholders, unlike in the private sector and in a normal company, the shareholders, the large ones, even institutional ones, as we know in private companies, they determine strategy, they determine company policies at the, at the strategic level, the posture of the business and so on. And they obviously, we know, play a very critical oversight role. In this case, these shareholders, even if you want to call them that, Firstly, are small, and the law precludes them from owning above a certain amount of the shares, firstly. Secondly, in the two roles I identified for, 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 for shareholders in private companies, they do not have the same policy-making, strategic posture, and oversight role over the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank's mandate is defined by the Constitution. So there's very little these shareholders can do. So it's a moot point, actually, about who owns it and whether it can be nationalized and so on. What the nationalization debate is a proxy for is changing the mandate of the Reserve Bank. So relaxing its approach on monetary policy and relaxing its approach to inflation. Now, I know I'm using technical terms here, but if you give me a moment, I'll just explain them very quickly. Monetary policy is about ensuring that the value of the currency is commensurate, more or less, to the value of the kinds of goods and services and activities which are underpinning your economy. So it can be about all of the accumulated things that you're going to have in your economy and the level and nature of activity and infrastructure and assets and everything 
you would reasonably peg what your value is, and it's related to GDP and so on. Now, because of a range of other factors, people believe that suddenly, if the Reserve Bank would suddenly print more money, we would be able to do much better. And we call that quantitative easing. So they look at countries uh, around the world, particularly countries like the U.S. And, uh, and, and Europe and so on, and they say, oh, look, those countries' central banks are all printing money. They're all quantitatively easing. They're helping their societies out. Why can't we do so? Well, they're doing so in a prudent way, in a way in which the activity in the economy, the infrastructure, the potential future innovations in research and development and other things, uh, you know, manufacturing, production of goods and services and so on, can back that up. Here, there's no guarantee that that's going to be the place, uh, you know, that's going to take place. And look at the countries across the continent. The Zimbabwean Reserve Central Bank was printing money, and, and look what happened there. Uh, you know, as the old uh, World War adage used to go, I used to go to market uh, with, uh, with, my, with my money in my pocket and goods in a basket. Now I go to market with, good, with money in the basket and goods in my pocket. So, so you end up with that kind of problem. But the proxy is that the elites then start to benefit from changing the mandate of the Reserve Bank. And so that's what largely that debate's about. And I think what has happened, because this policy conference is largely a proxy for what's likely to happen at the end of the year's elective conference, policy debates get subsumed in, you know, who's associated, which individual is associated with which kind of policy idea and so on. So if it, it wins or it defeats, it gives you a bellwether for what might happen at the end of the year. I think that Ramaphosa faction, if you want to call it that, because it's much more complicated than merely factions, have decided, you know, we can let this resolution pass. It may not eventually come to be, but even if it does, at least we are protected by the fact that the Constitution does not allow for a changing of the mandate of the Reserve Bank and the, and the likelihood of being able to push through a resolution of that nature through Parliament is going to be quite difficult. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a moot debate at the moment. But the real, the real thing is that people want a change in the mandate of the Reserve Bank because suddenly, you know, owning the Reserve Bank because your shareholder structure is different, it's not going to change what the Reserve Bank can do. If you print money, you're going to end up in, 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 in major problems. If you don't try to curb and target inflation, you're also going to end up in major problems. So you have to strike a balance between the two. But the prudence of the nature of these kinds of debates are not necessarily what is always going on in ANC policy conference. You know, those things go, there's so many multiple kind of purposes and things going on that, uh, that the debates just become mired in, in what I would call a silliness sometimes. In other words, uh, if I can sum that part up, basically, it, at its heart, uh, it is a it is an argument uh, shorn of all the other things, Ibrahim. Uh, uh, it's it's really just an argument about whether or not the country will have a pro-inflation or a controlled monetary policy, and the implications of either of those two. Do we want to devalue the currency? Or do we want to maintain it? And each, each alternative has its, uh, its beneficiaries. Uh, in the last couple of minutes, if, if I might, why should we worry about what comes out of this policy conference? Is it going to have any actual effect on anything or is it simply 
uh, some shadow boxing or a shadow puppet theater? Look, I think Brooks, it does matter and it doesn't matter. It does matter in the sense that, you know, despite the fact the ANC has lost power and authority and even influence, I would say, in the major metros of the country, because they only control two now, right? The others are in hands of of minority governments or coalitions, uh, as some people call them. But these minority governments in the cities still have to deal, firstly, with the ANC at national level, because the national fiscus uh, is still under control of the ANC, and they devolve resources to all of the metropolitan areas and even the provinces um, in large measure. So that's the first reason why, if we're worried about government functioning, and we all do because we we live in the country, we need a functional government. So, you know, we have to worry about it in that sense. We have to worry about it in the sense that the policies are going to have an impact on our lives, um, literally, on, on a day-to-day basis. And for the most vulnerable in society, they, they need to bother because sending your children to school, uh, accessing health care, getting a pension, even a basic thing like renewing your your passport or your ID or getting a driver's license is going to depend uh, on, on, on this performance of government. Your life chances are dependent on it. So in that sense, we have to worry. And, you know, in the most prosaic sense, we have to worry and we have to bother because it's the party in government. So we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty details of, you know, what's going on. And perhaps our media serves us poorly in the sense that they focus largely on the big battles which are going on rather than telling us what the real implications for this are going to be on a daily basis. But be that as it may, that's the reasons why we worry. The reasons why we shouldn't bother too much is that, look, sometimes ANC conferences and policy resolutions don't actually translate into specific action in government. So so that's the one. The second is that, as I explained in my opening, I think we first now have to really worry about the fact that the ANC as an organization stabilizes itself and doesn't allow its organizational problems to start to infect. It has already done so, but it doesn't further infect public institutions um, and that they are rehabilitated and the resolutions which are taken about taking action on the on the recommendations made by the Zondo Commission on State Capture, on the prosecution of those individuals who are involved or implicated in state capture, those matter and matter greatly because they are going to tell us about what the health of our public life and our public institutions are going to look like in future and whether they're going to be rehabilitated. I mean, it's an outstanding, you know, different conversation about the likelihood of these things happening, but at least the resolution stands. And the, and the organizational resolutions about people who are implicated or who are ch- charged uh, for for any kind of criminal or, or corruption-related misconduct uh, must step aside from being able to contest positions in the ANC. And there, were, there was a push among some delegates to reverse both of those resolutions. But those were defeated. Now, the media focus has been because those resolutions are defeated, it seems that Mr. Ramaphosa is in the clear. My argument is whether Mr. Ramaphosa is in the clear or not, we need to worry much more gravely about whether these resolutions are translated into action. So those are the reasons why, Bruce, Brooks, I think we we do want to bother and we do want to 
carefully evaluate what's going on uh, rather than just be dismissive because the ANC is in such a mess. The fact that it's in a mess is, is worrisome because they are the leader of government and because they're the leader of government, their stability is going to matter for government stability. And we can see the shaky foundations in the ANC are not, are not so stable and on solid ground that it does really affect the way in which government performs. Ibrahim, I guess if I wanted to extract a pull quote from what you just said, uh, it would be, we need to worry about the policy declarations precisely because the, the organization making these declarations is in such a mess. <laughs> Absolutely, but that's the conundrum, I'm afraid. Um, that's the conundrum we have to conclude on. There's no, you know, it's inescapable that that's the case. We have been speaking with Ibrahim Fakir, a noted political analyst and prolific writer on uh, political topics and one of my favorite commentators. And I, I try to read much of what he writes because I think he has an unvarnished insight into the ways and the wiles of politics in South Africa. Ibrahim, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to chat with you, even if we had to explore questions that no rational person should have to to really worry about, which is the nature of ownership of the Reserve Bank. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, again, thank you. Much. And we will come back with you at some point uh, when we get closer to the, the elective conference so that we can unravel and figure out what in the world that means and how it's going and why we should worry about those outcomes. I look forward to that. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Brooks. Oh, it's a pleasure always. You take care of yourself.